I'm someone who gets confused a lot. Um, I'm someone who often gets myself into lots of misunderstandings. And um, I, I, I've often been around people which have been, you know, in, in a similar situation. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine asked me to go to a birthday party with him. He was keen on a girl for about a year. And she was having like a 30th birthday party. And he got an invite. There was only about 20 of us invited. I got an invite as well. About 20 of us invited. And it was just a dinner. So I'm thinking, okay, if you're going to make a move, this is going to be your time. It's her birthday. It's a time of celebration. Her closest friends and family are there. This is the moment. So anyway, the birthday party's going well. There's only about five guys and 15 girls. So already his odds are looking pretty good. I'm his wingman, so I'm not competition, right? So he's feeling very confident. He's going in. And... um, Anyway, somehow the conversation comes around to him and he gets control of the entire conversation. Like he becomes the man. He becomes the person. Everyone's tuned in. And he starts talking about relationships and intimacy. And I'm like, oh, where's this going to go? And he, he just has people. And he starts saying, you know, a lot of people think intimacy is about physical attraction But I think it's much more than that. I think it's about being really vulnerable and authentic and having a deep connection with the other person. And as you can imagine, the girls were just thinking, this is amazing. This is the guy that everyone wants. He's not superficial. This is his thing. And he keeps going on. Intimacy, it's about this deep longing and this deep connection, you know. It's none of this superficial stuff. And I'm thinking, if there's ever a moment you are going to get the girl, this is the night. Like, you know, friends and family are there. This is it. And then all of a sudden, you know, as he's talking about intimacy and, you know, it's this, this thing. He says, take my relationship with Mark, for example. And I'm like... What the heck have you just done? Like, this is, not, this is not what you're meant to be talking about. And somehow I get brought into this big example about what intimacy looks like and our friendship. And I'm like, this is a disaster. Like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Needless to say, he completely misread the audience and misread the situation. He did not get the girl. It's a sad story. So there are times in life. Sorry? He got me. Yes, yes, yeah. I was his, yeah, unfortunately, I was the, uh, <laughs> the consolation prize. Um, there are times in life where we completely misunderstand the situation or misunderstand what's going on. Check out, uh, this is something I found on the internet last year. So um, uh, this is just an Instagram post uh, by Kathy. Rest in peace, Tom. This is the cat, obviously. Rest in peace, Tom. You'll always be the coolest cat. My boys will miss you. It's a nice post. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the kind of thing you might post on the internet. So, and then this happened. Okay, this is really embarrassing. I don't know whose cat we buried, but Tom just showed up at our house. Only at the vicar's house. Got some happy boys here. They seriously buried the wrong cat. How do you do that? Like, I don't know. You have a little funeral. Like, it's not anyway. This is incredibly embarrassing. Does anyone remember a show called The IT Crowd? It's old school. This is super embarrassing. If you're a nerd, this is your moment to shine. Nerds can be funny. This is a 45-second clip. You've got to pay close attention. Check this out. I don't think that's true. With all due respect, John, I am head of IT, and I have it on good authority. If you type Google into Google, you can break the internet. So please, (laughs) no one try it. Even for a joke. (laughs) It's not a laughing matter. You can break the internet. 
don't know why I remember that. I just thought it was hilarious. So, um, we, we experienced lots of misunderstandings in life, and um, we, we want to talk about feeling good about life. We want to, in a sense, we're talking about some, what does the Bible have to say? What does Jesus and, and, and the, the early church, and what does, really, what does God's Word, we believe the Bible, have to say about, really, well-being or mental health? And we're going to be, again, studying this book of Philippians. We're going through what this, this church leader, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's often known as, wrote to the church at Philippi and what he spoke to them about and kind of gleaned some principles from him about well-being and how to feel good about life. But before we do that, I just thought it's probably worthwhile just going through a few misunderstandings because, as you would know, this is a very sensitive topic. Lots of people have strong ideas. Lots of people can feel really bad about themselves that they don't feel good about life. So I just thought we'd do a really quick um, list of misunderstandings that we might have and maybe just talk about them really quickly. First misunderstanding is this, that if we just be strong, then we will be happy. If we just kind of harden up, if we just kind of discipline ourselves, if we can get ourselves in the right frame of mind, if we can just be mentally strong, emotionally strong, then we will be happy. Um, one of my mates is a very capable guy. He's the kind of guy that will really go on and do crazy, amazing things in his life. But he really struggled a lot with uh, this sense of well-being. He often felt exhausted, frustrated, overwhelmed, stressed, and was not loving life at all. But he was the kind of guy who can, in a sense, play injured, to use, a, to use like a, a sport analogy. He was injured. He'd had some really bad things happen to him, and he hadn't really got over them. But because he was so capable, he just kind of hardened up, gritted his teeth, and kept going, and was strong and strong and strong, and that's how he got through. Until a counsellor spoke to him one day and just said, listen, you're playing injured. If you break an arm on the football field, you might be able to keep playing for another four or five minutes, but you cannot keep playing week after week after week. There needs to be a time of rest. There needs to be a time of rejuvenation. So again, we're not trying to just say, well, just discipline yourself enough, you know, just be better and then you'll be happy. Second misunderstanding is that if I walk closely with God, if we just walk closely with God, then we'll be happy. And again, if you, you kind of knew this whole church thing, but like if you read through the Psalms, there's a, there's a guy called David. He writes lots of these songs or poems to God. And in these, these songs, he talks about his loneliness. He talks about his despair. He shares about his anxiety and his fears. And yet God said that he was a, a person after his own heart. God described him as having this deep, intimate relationship with him. But even though he had a deep, intimate relationship with God, that didn't stop him from experiencing some of those things. The third thing is that if we just pray, then we will be happy. If we just pray. Um, Tim just spoke about the, the kind of last days of Jesus' life here on earth, where he, he took the cup and he, he took the bread and he talked about the sacrifice that was about to happen. Just moments after that, really, he went to this garden, you know, or had been in this garden, and, and the idea was that Jesus was basically confronted with the fact that he was having to go to the cross. And he begins to pray, God, if it's at all possible, would you take this cup from me? The prayer itself did not relieve Jesus' concern about what was going to happen. The Bible describes it as even that he was sweating blood in a sense. Just because he prayed didn't mean that he didn't have some sense of feeling overwhelmed about the situation. At the same time, there's another set of misunderstandings. 
We will never be happy because we will never be happy because of our traumatic experiences. Um, about six months ago, I was at a friend's house and um, I was just walking. I had to walk through a park to get to my car. And it was late at night and it was dark. And as I was walking, I, my, my left ankle rolled and I went down. And as I went down, I obviously put my hand down. But because it was dark, what I didn't see was there was a post sticking out of the ground about this high. And I went smashing into it with my face. I'd never been to hospital other than basically just being born, right? Which I didn't, wasn't really my choice. I've never been to hospital other than to visit people. I'd never been through any kind of traumatic experience. But I went through this kind of traumatic physical experience where there was blood coming out of everywhere. I literally yelled out to my friend, help, help, help. I thought I was going to be left unconscious in the park to bleed out and die alone. That's what I thought was going to happen. I had a massive freak out. Anyway, it was all fine. I had to get stitches. My face was messed up, but my face was messed up anyway, so what did it matter, right? Um, But that traumatic experience, I think I'm completely over it. Sometimes we have traumatic experiences and we completely can get over them. Sometimes we're left with scars. I do have a slight scar. I think if you come close, you probably don't want to come that close, but I do have a slight scar. And sometimes we have to carry the injury with us for life. But that doesn't mean that we can't feel good about life or we can't have a strong sense of well-being. Another one would be that we will never be happy because of our family background. Um, there's, a, there's a famous story of a guy called Joseph. It's in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And if you, if you heard of the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, I think that's about him. But he basically gets betrayed by his brothers He gets sold off as a slave. He has this incredibly difficult, traumatic, extremely, really bad, evil family background. And yet, later in life, he is able to forgive his brothers. He's able to forgive his family. There's a sense in which somehow God did this amazing work in his life and he gained such a sense of well-being that he was able to be healthy enough to forgive those who'd hurt him. And the last thing is that we'll never be happy because of our circumstances. And that's really where I want to land today. The question we want to ask today is this. Is it possible to feel good about life when things don't go our way? Is it possible to feel good about life when things don't go our way? Um, If you have a Bible there, you're welcome to take it out and you could read along with me or the the passage will be up on the screen. We're going to look at a book of the Bible called Philippians. The Bible's made up of heaps and heaps of like little books. Uh, It's not one big book. It's made up of lots of little books. Uh, It's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you're interested in kind of exploring that, we'd love to talk to you about that. This is a letter that was written by a church leader. Uh, He's often called the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And this is what he says in verse 12. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here we find Paul under Roman guard, under the guard of Roman soldiers. He's been arrested. And he hasn't been arrested because he's a bad dude, right? He's been arrested because the religious leaders at that time did not like him talking about Jesus. Paul had had this encounter with God where rather than try to earn his way to heaven, rather than try to, you know, just obey and obey and obey and, and be stricter and stricter and more committed and more faithful and more pure and all that kind of that big track that people get on, 
Paul had this incredible revelation where Jesus came to him and revealed himself. And Paul began to shift his faith from what he could do to earn God's favour and rested solely in what Jesus had done for him on the cross. And because of that, Paul was so excited. He could not help but want to tell the whole world. The Bible talks about when people get hold of Jesus, it will get hold of them and everything will begin to change. He was so excited about this message, he could not, want to, he could not help but want to tell everyone what Jesus had done for him. But the religious leaders at the time did not like this. They were threatened by this new message. Um, and so they put him in prison. And Paul began uh, to speak to the Roman authorities about Jesus. So here's Paul in prison. You would think he would be thinking to himself, well, I'd like to be out there telling people about Jesus, but they've locked me up in prison. I would think, you would think he would kind of go, well, I've done what I can. There's nothing else I can do. I'm a victim of my circumstances. Things have not gone my way. What should I do? I can't tell people about Jesus anymore, so I'm just going to give up and be content with what I've got. But that's not what Paul does. This is so interesting. You've got to get hold of this. Paul says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That is the message of God's grace. What has happened to me by them putting me in prison, it's actually made the cause of Jesus, the message of Jesus go further and go wider and go deeper. He goes on to say, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, Listen, I know there is going to be a Roman guard who's going to basically be chained to me for their shift. I'm going to have like hours where I can talk to this Roman guard about Jesus. And then there's going to be a change of shift. And then there's going to be another Roman guard who's going to be changed to me. Then there's going to be another change of shift. And there'll be someone else who's going to be changed to me. Paul looks at that and says, hang on. Yes, I would rather be out. Yes, I'd rather be free. Yes, I want to tell as many people as possible about this incredible life-changing message of Jesus Christ. But since I can't, I should focus on what I can do. What can I do? I can talk to the Roman guards. I can get to know them. I can love them. I can hear their story. And I can begin to introduce the story of Jesus to them. He goes on to say, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Just because people are excited about Jesus doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go out and tell everyone about Jesus. There was a real fear of persecution. There was a fear of death. People died because they were telling other people about Jesus. So many people were sitting there going, well, look, Paul, we're, we're with you. We believe the message of Jesus. We've encountered this incredible grace. We want to tell as many people as possible about what we've experienced. But we like many of us, we're worried and we're concerned. We've got families, we've got, we've got lives to live. We're worried how this is going to turn out. But because of what had happened to Paul and because of his confidence in what Jesus was doing, they gained a sense of confidence themselves. And they began to look to Paul as an inspiration. And Paul says, because of my chains... Because of my chains, everyone else has looked at what's happened to me and rather than be more fearful, which was a danger, they became more bold and more courageous and more determined. This really matters. We are going to give our life to this message in the same way that the Apostle Paul has given his life to this message. This is an amazing story. Now, 
to summarise, I hate summarising stuff. This is the three things that Paul did. Number one, Paul passed on the message of Jesus to the entire palace guard. He could have just been complacent. He could have given up, but he said, no, I'm going to do what I can. Secondly, Paul celebrated the fact that other Christians were telling people about Jesus. He could have been defeated. And he said, no, there's good that's coming out of this. And lastly, which we haven't really seen, Paul wrote this letter that we have in our hands today. One of the most significant letters that's ever been written in human history. He wrote this letter to the church of Philippi and we're still reading it 2,000 years later. This is amazing. Now you could look at that, I could look at that and go, well, you know, circumstances didn't really go Paul's way. I would have just given up. But Paul decided not to give up. He still had things to do. Some of you may have heard of a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Has anyone read this book? It's an excellent book. It's not by a Christian author. It's just purely secular research going through a whole heap of stuff that is helpful for life. In the book, Stephen Covey talks about what he describes as the circle of influence and the circle of concern. And he says, in any endeavor in life, there is a circle of concern. The circle of concern are all the things that we are concerned about, all the things that worry us, that are on our mind, that we care about, people, activities, circumstances, everything that we are concerned about. But we don't always have influence over those things. There are many things that are outside of our control. So what Stephen Covey says is within the circle of concern, there is a smaller circle called the circle of influence. Those are the things that we care about, but what we also have influence over. We can somehow affect them. So when it comes to anything in life, what Stephen Covey says is, if you want to be effective, if you want to see something change, if you want to be proactive... We need to focus our time, energy, and resources on those things that we have influence over. There is no point spending our time outside of the circle of influence. We should focus on those things that we can do. Now, interestingly, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He would have had concerns about anything and everything, but especially about the church. And, you know, there was, I mean, there were people teaching the wrong thing. There were people being persecuted. There were people who weren't really sure about some of the key doctrines. He would have been concerned about heaps of stuff. But what did he do? He focused his time, energy, and resources and attention on that which he had influence over. He basically adopted the circle of influence. He was proactive. Now, what does all this have to do with feeling good about life? This is great, but what's it got to do with our well-being? How do I feel good about life when things don't go my way? Well, interestingly, there is a heap of research on this. There's another book that's come out recently called The Happiness Advantage. This is well worth reading. A guy called Sean Archer did heaps of research and he said this. Scientists once thought happiness was almost completely hereditary. But thankfully, they have since discovered that in fact we have far more control over our emotional well-being than previously believed. In other words, people thought we were a victim of our genetics. But that's not what they think now. They now believe there's lots of things that are well within our circle of influence. 
Um, he goes on to say, while we, each, while we each have a happiness baseline that we fluctuate around on a daily basis with concerted effort, we can raise that baseline permanently so that even when we are going up and down, we are doing so at a higher level. What the research says is this, and all sorts of different studies have been done. You can pretty much just Google just about anything and you'll all get the same thing. When we take proactive steps to work within our circle of influence to do certain activities, they don't make a 1% difference or a 2% difference. They can make a significant difference to our well-being. It is not just a tiny little incremental step. It can be significant. If you want to know this, talk to someone who has a newborn baby who is not getting any sleep. If you could just take not sleeping and then add sleep into the equation, their well-being is significantly improved. Would you agree? It's obvious. Sean Archie goes on to say, here's a whole heap of suggestions, and you could just Google your own list. Find something to look forward to. If we want to work within our circle of influence, find something to look forward to. Commit conscious acts of kindness. Find someone that we can be kind to. That will improve our well-being. Spend time with others. Make physical uh, surroundings more positive. I'm terrible at this. I live in a mess, you know, but I live around people who care about this stuff and it does make a difference. Exercise. Actually take the time to exercise. Spend money on others. Spending money on ourselves doesn't improve our well-being, but spending money on others actually does. Do something you're good at. Send an email to someone to, to tell them how much you appreciate them. Smile when someone comes within 10 feet. Unless there's been some kind of like surgically, you know, has anyone seen that thing on, um, I don't know why I'm saying this, but has anyone seen on The Simpsons where that guy gets plastic surgery and he can only smile now? Anyway, this is, I've got ADD, I apologise. Okay, smile when someone comes uh, within 10 feet. Write down three things you are thankful for every day before you go to sleep. Spend two minutes every day journaling about one good thing that happened that day. Spend at least 15 minutes every day doing something fun. Now, we may not be able to do all of those things, but we could do one of those things, two of those things, three of those things. And what the research is saying is when we focus on our circle of influence, those things that we have some influence over, it significantly improves our well-being. I have a mate, um, <coughs> he actually came and spoke at church here a few years ago. Um, this is my mate Corey. And um, this is him with his daughter Ollie. About five years ago, maybe a bit less than that now, I was meant to meet him at the gym and he rings me, um, or he texts me actually, and he says, um, can't come to the gym, heaps of stuff going on, we'll call you later. I'm like, no worries. I get a phone call about 11 o'clock that night. He is a tough guy. He came fourth in the world for the, a massive martial arts competition. He's a police officer, he's six foot four, he's a big guy. I don't see him. He's not an emotional, touchy-feely guy. He rings me in tears saying, we've just found out our daughter, Ollie, who was nine months old at the time, needs a heart transplant. And I said to him, well, what the heck? Like, how did this happen? And he said, here's the go. Up until about three months ago, they wouldn't have even offered this. It wouldn't have even been on the table. The law was they wouldn't give a heart transplant to someone until they were 12 months old. They've just changed the law. We're trying to work out what to do. Her chance of survival is extremely low. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I haven't even talked to my wife yet. I literally, she's taken the kids. I rang you. And he was a mess. 
Um, the good news is they had the heart transplant a year later and Ollie lived and the heart transplant went really well. Everything seemed to be back on track. It was a full-on 12 months. Everything seemed to be back on track. About 6 to 12 months after that, because her immune system is down, her body is constantly attacking her heart, so they have to give her lots of medications to basically reduce the efficiency or effectiveness of her immune system. Her immune system was down. She got a virus that went to her brain and got, uh, had a massive seizure. And the doctors think, they're just guessing, I guess, but they're saying that she basically got brain damage and it killed about 90% of her brain. She's now nonverbal. She says about three words. Added to that, she started having seizures. And at first, it wasn't too bad. And then it began to get worse and worse and worse. And then they're called drop seizures. So I don't know if you know what they are, but basically she'll just drop to the ground or her head will drop. And they're really dangerous because when you just drop, you can hit your head and knock yourself out or anything. So initially it wasn't too bad, but then she began to have them like several times a day to the point that now for the last three years she's been having two to 300 drop seizures a day. This is what it looks like for his life. He gets up, they've got the heart medication, they've got the, the seizure medication. There's about 20 medications that Ollie has to take every day. If they get some of these medications wrong, even by the smallest amount, they might have to rush to the hospital. One day, he could, he's got a photographic memory. He could not for the life of him remember whether he'd given her medication. And she can't say anything. And it was panic. They had to go, they weren't sure what to do. This was the life, this is the life he lives. They can't give her her own bed because she might just, like, they, he, Ollie sleeps between Corey and his wife Mandy every night, has slept between them for the last four years. He gets about two hours sleep a night. It is a full-on life. If anyone I know I've ever seen has had circumstances that should rob you, that should rob us of our well-being, I mean, I, I, I go to the gym with him three or four times a week and I, I have bad days like all of us. I feel so bad even complaining about the slightest thing to him. It is a full-on life. Um, I rang him this morning and I said I want to talk about this with him, uh, with, with you guys, because even though all that's happening, he would have one of the highest levels of well-being of anyone I know. And I've known him since high school, so this isn't new. He's always been like this. And you might say it's genetic or whatever, but I said, well, I know from my point of view what you do, but can you tell me what are you doing to work within the circle of influence? I can, I can share my observations, but can you tell me? And I, I know, like he comes to the gym three or four times a week. It's the only thing he does for himself, and his wife makes sure she does the same thing. They try to eat healthy as much as they can. His wife's a bit of a, she's hardcore when it comes to health, so they try to eat healthy. They can't do much about sleep, but the moment he can get sleep, he just, he just drops off. They do everything they can. And I said, what, what else do you do? And he said, every day I get up and I have to remind myself that this is a gift. Their daughter is going to die. She's terminal. There's no coming back. Um, they thought she had chickenpox two nights ago. He had to pull out the, the He texted me again. Can't come to the gym. Ollie might have chickenpox. I rang him the next day and said, I don't want to be rude, but if she gets chickenpox, what happens? He goes, oh, she's, it's, she, like, it's, there's a high chance she'll die. Like, her body won't be able to fight chickenpox. 
Like this is the kind of life. He had to get on a plane and go to Melbourne straight away. I said, what do you do? He said, every day I remind myself that life is a gift. And I see Ollie and I'm reminded of that. And it, it just made me realize, you know, we have so much to be grateful for. And he said, every day I try to be positive. Today he has to catch up with someone who is another parent of a kid who's gone through a heart transplant. And I don't know how to say this in church. They're super annoying and, and draining people. And Corey and Mandy take time with them all the time. And then there's some other people who've got, their kids had a heart transplant and they've got to catch up with them. So Corey's just like, I'm going to hate today. You know, I was talking this morning, I do not want to do today. But I've told myself I'm going to be positive. I said, how well do you think that goes for you? Because I watch you, you are extremely positive. He goes, I just think to myself, I'm either going to be positive, and if I can't be positive, I'm going to turn into a joke. He goes, today is going to be a bunch of us sitting around talking about how our kids are going to die. It's going to be fantastic, you know? And he turns it into this kind of joke. But this is his way of dealing with it. But there's a sense in which I just watched him and I think, if anyone can say, I can't be happy, I can't have a good sense of well-being, I can't experience joy and peace because of my circumstances. He is not finding this to be perfect. His life is far from perfect. He still has days where he gets to the gym and he hated the day. But he is working within his circle of influence. If you're not a Christian today, once you know you're really welcome. I, I did not grow up in the church and I know what it's like to kind of come to church or be checking out. It can be pretty freaky. So thanks for being brave enough to come. We hope we're not too weird. Um, but hopefully this is helpful. This is just a good life principle. Would you agree? Whether you're a Christian or not, you can just do this. This is, you know, confirmed by secular research. But if we are Christians... We don't just believe that we can act within our circle of influence. We also believe there is a God who has influence over all things. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he stood up in front of a handful of people and no one should have taken him seriously except he had risen from the dead. And he said, I am the light of the world. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And we sit there and go, yeah, but Jesus, you know, you can't change circumstances. Jesus is saying, I spoke a word and rose the dead. I spoke a word and calmed the storms. All authority, everything comes under my authority. But Jesus, you can't change people's hearts. And he's like, what are you talking about? That's the business I'm in. I have influence over the hearts and minds and wills of men and women all across the earth. This is how I work. There is not a single circumstance, a single action, a single item, a single situation, a single person that God cannot influence or even take control of. And there is a sense in which today we should be filled with incredible hope. Yes, we should work within our circle of influence, but ultimately we come before God and we say, God, I have all these concerns. I have no influence over them whatsoever. But you are good and you are powerful. You spoke a word and created the universe. You spoke a word and raised the dead. You spoke a word and calmed the storms. Jesus, in this situation, in my life, in their life, would you speak? Would you just speak? And we have so much to be grateful for and so many reasons to be filled with hope because God is good and God is powerful. What if you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. Man, I can't believe how much you love us, God. You are just so good. And the, the fact that you take so much interest in our lives, I, I'm so grateful, Father. Thank you for Corey's example to me. 
thank you, Father, that he has this incredible confidence that Ollie will pass away, but when she passes, she'll walk into your arms, Jesus, because you came for sinners and you came for those who trust in you. So thank you so much. There is hope beyond this life and there is hope for us here today. Would you give us faith to believe? Amen.